Hi, and welcome to the Let's Talk Healthy Pets podcast. I'm Dr. Karen Becker, Dr. Mercola's Chief Wellness Veterinary Consultant, and I'm excited to share with you the latest news about pet health to guide you in keeping your animal companions healthy, comfortable, and happy throughout their lives. My goal as a proactive vet is to empower pet owners to make knowledgeable decisions to extend the lifespan and well-being of their animals. If you're looking for more pet health tips, you can also subscribe to my free daily newsletter at healthypets.mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and today I'm so excited. Barbara has nominated Dr. Fern Slack for a Game Changer Award, and Dr. Slack is joining me right now to tell us more about her passion towards all animals, but specifically kitties. Uh, And she really focuses on keeping kitties vibrantly healthy. We're going to learn more about what she does, what she's passionate about, and all the great work that she is doing. So thank you, Dr. Slack, for joining me. And congratulations on your Game Changer Award. Thank you so much. And I'm delighted to be here. So tell us more uh, about, of course, veterinarians, generally speaking, we all probably knew early on that we love animals, but let's walk through your evolution because in addition, of course, to becoming a veterinarian, you went on to set up not just a feline specific feline centric hospital, you went on to kind of radically evolve and grow past what you learned in veterinary school in terms of how you approach, not just managing disease, but preventing disease from occurring through nutrition. So we're interested in hearing that entire evolution of you professionally. So <laughs> if you would bring us all up to speed, that would be fantastic. I'd be thrilled to. It's a, it's a rather long journey um, because I'm uh, slightly older than God. So you know, been <laughs> for a very long time. Um, I would say that my first thought regarding um, non-traditional nutrition, and when I say traditional, I mean what we were taught in vet school, which is basically kibble, was during my my 10 years in critical care in the first part of my practice, when I noticed um, time after time that every urinary obstruction uh, I saw in a male cat, the cat was eating uh, kibble. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And I put that aside and didn't think about it anymore until uh, I'd say about 20 years ago, I adopted two kittens, um, litter mates, And one of them uh, was outside in indoor-outdoor hunting quite a lot, ate a lot of of prey. And the other one stayed inside and ate kibble all the time. Um, Mm. I didn't ask them to do that. That was just their choice. Um, The the one who went outside and ate prey is still alive and with me today. Um, Mm. the, The one that was indoors eating kibble Um, passed away about six years ago as a result of renal failure. Um, And I couldn't help but notice the um, N equals two uh, difference there. And I really started to pay attention at that point to what was in the kibble. I started reading labels and I started noticing things like uh, urinary tract acidifiers. And then I went back in my head to that Uh, observation I had made at the ER. And I thought, okay, so we learned in med school that meat creates an acidic urine and plant material creates an alkaline urine. And when you have a highly concentrated alkaline urine, 
you're going to have more crystals precipitating out in solution and struvites are what you get. Um, and if you're eating kibble made out of plants with no fluid in it, you're gonna have a highly concentrated um, alkaline urine. And so sure enough, I started moving towards foods that were meat-based and had lots and lots of fluid in them. And an interesting observation regarding that particular problem is that since I opened this practice in 2017, and we've been um, focusing entirely on um, nutrition as the basis for all health, um, this is a cat hospital. And we have seen since 2017, three urinary tract obstructions, all of them new patients who were wow. eating. Not a single cat on the diets that we recommend since 2017 has had a urinary tract obstruction. So amazing. Yeah. Um, it really is. We have, we have a cardiologist that comes in here that works at her own um, specialty hospital. And every time she comes in, she looks to see how many urine bags we have hanging out of our cages. I'm like, none ever. And she still hasn't quite gotten her head around the fact that that's because my patients eat well. Uh, another thing I noticed when we opened this practice based on this nutritional recommendation is that an amazing, absolutely mind-blowing number of other problems simply went away when my mm -hmm. new client changed food. So we would see cats, numerous cats came in as active diabetics. We have one active diabetic in this practice right now. Um, all of them but one became non-diabetic and that cat has an underlying other endocrinological order, disorder. Um, obesity just goes away because obesity isn't caused, I don't believe now, by how much cats eat, but what they eat. Yeah. Um, because the feline metabolism is not designed to deal with sugars and carbohydrates. It's designed yeah. to deal with meat, and it doesn't know what to do with that extra carbohydrate sugar load. And it becomes fat. So when we put cats on a meat-based prey model diet, which we refer to sort of jokingly as the mouse in a blender model, um, we see the obesity just melt away. Um, and quite a number of other things that I used to think were normal, dandruff, for instance, mm -hmm. um, yeah. stops being present. Um, yeah. Ododermatitis, that the dry chronic form where the pads yeah. all are white and, you know, kind of just dried out looking. Um, I've discovered that the pads are kind of the window to the gut. If mm -hmm. I see chronic pododermatitis, I know I've got chronic gut disease now, which we verify with GI panels and so on. Um, but if I, if I can see a nice, healthy pink pad that doesn't have that, that whitish stuff on it, then I'm pretty comfortable that we have a happy gut. And I can also tell because these guys stop vomiting immediately. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there is that societal concept that cats vomit, that hairballs are normal, that vomiting three times a week is normal. It's not normal. It's extremely common because virtually every commercially made cat food out there is made out of plant material, which as we are now learning because of GI microbiome science, um, it, when a species eats a diet that is evolutionarily normal for that species, the gut biome will also be typically evolutionarily normal. And as we're learning on the human side in medical research, um, the gut biome controls an unbelievable amount of our health, um, even yeah. neurologically. Um, and so when we feed a cat who's an obligate carnivore plant material, 
we are theoretically radically changing their gut biome. Mm -hmm. And if we feed them an evolutionarily normal diet, um, mouse in a blender, um, their gut biome theoretically should change back to normal. And once it does so, then the gut disease induced by an improper biome, dysbiosis or aberrant microbiome, um, should resolve for the most part on its own. And for the most part, I think it, it does. does. Yeah. This doesn't fix everything. Um, sometimes gut disease has progressed to a point where it, where medicinal intervention is needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's plenty of disorders that are not um, nutritionally induced, but a surprising number are. Another thing that we have almost wiped out in our practice, surprisingly, is asthma. Mm-hmm. Virtually no asthmatic cats that come in here remain that yeah. way. They've changed. Yeah. That goes away too. So, so I have a, so I have a question because I came to the same conclusions you did 20 years ago and just did exactly what you did. Started my own practice, basically talking to my clients, not my colleagues, my clients. So I found exactly what you found. I'm like, Hey, and before I was a vet, I was a wildlife biologist. So I would say to my clients, listen, cats shouldn't puke. They shouldn't be chronically constipated. Why are they shedding so much? They're supposed to eat mice. We're going to mimic mice. And my clients were pretty okay with this. It seemed totally logical to me. So I did it. Yep. Had exactly what you saw in practice. I, I actually, I've only unblocked two cats in my whole life of my own. And that was because they were eating raw species appropriate. And then they went on to kibble and then they blocked it. And then they came back and said, oh, sorry, I didn't know it would happen that fast, but that's yeah. it. So I've had the same experience. And then Fern, when I, when I started about 15 years ago, talking to my conventional colleagues, wow, the, I don't want to say backlash, but the, um, my colleagues saying, what the heck are you doing? Mm -hmm. The conversation 15 years ago didn't go well. I will say in the last five years, it has gotten easier and better because I think more and more veterinarians are coming to the same conclusions we have come to, but because still so many of our colleagues have not for how are, are you, how is your reception from your conventional colleagues right now? It is, um, as you say, very, very problematic. Um, in my community, I'm um, viewed as the crazy raw, raw food. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's very, very difficult to um, send any of my patients to any of our local um, referral groups because the first thing that happens is they get a recommendation for a prescription diet. Of course. And I not only think that that most commercial cat food is bad. My personal opinion is that prescription diets are the worst of the lot. Um, and the, the entire theory of a prescription diet, actually, when you think about it, yeah. is weird. I mean, if you went to a cardiologist and a cardiologist handed you a, a box of cereal and said, you must eat this for the rest of your life or you will die and nothing else, you would find a different cardiologist. And as soon as I mentioned that to my clients, they go, oh, yeah, you know, really, the minute you think about it, it makes no sense at all. Yeah. Um, there are no diets for that that are curative for any condition, unless the the question is a specific dietary allergy, which I think is also highly overdiagnosed. Um, but cats eat mice when they're when they're little. They eat mice when they're middle aged. They eat mice when they're old. Um, so there's no age diets, there's no breed diets, there's none of that. They eat what they should eat evolutionarily and maintain really excellent health. But, but yeah, as you say, the, the reception is, um, 
is difficult, but it is slowly getting better. Yes. Um, and I think part of it, at least in our area, I'd like to I'd like to take some credit for the fact that yeah. colleagues locally are seeing that our patients get better. Yeah. And results speak. Yeah. And and honestly, if you are like me, you probably are referred when when they don't know what else to do. That oh, yeah. those are the those are the patients we get, and our entire practices are based off of everyone's when they don't know what to do and they can't bear to recommend euthanasia, they're like, Hey, go see the witch doctor in town. <laughs> exactly. The witch doctor. Yeah. I, uh, the beautiful I, I, part of it. Yes. Yes. We've all, we've all been called that or worse, but what's interesting is after you fix everyone else's unfixable cases, mm-hmm. you're right. You do establish some level of very quiet respect they, credibility, I call it. There you go. There you go. And I think more than anything, we have the we have the the heartfelt assurance that we know in our hearts it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. That patient got better. Yes. Because a the client trusted our advice. I think sometimes desperation causes people to become significantly more open minded when their options euthanasia or try something different, they, a lot of people become motivated through excruciating pain and very bad, very poor choices that they're left with. So out of that, they, they become open-minded, decide to try this. And of course it's life-changing, not just for the client, but most importantly for the patient. And out of that, you built an entire wildly successful practice, fixing other cases that people can't. And yet I also find it amazing that you, that you came to this kind of out of an emergency clinic experience, you haven't, you common sense, plus your desire to want to fix patients in a way that you probably couldn't before you've come to this conclusion. I don't want to say on your own, but you've developed nutrition as a foundation, not learning that in vet school. And I love, I feel like, you know, there we're soul sisters and we're peas in a pod in that all of us kind of coming to these conclusions, not necessarily working together or even in the same state, we're coming to these logical conclusions. And out of that, we're building this kind of common sense army of veterinarians recognizing that we have to address food foundationally, or we're never going to ultimately not only heal our patients, but potentially prevent disease from occurring. So when you started your kitty hospital in 2017, are you, are you now on your second generation? Uh, you know, you meet your clients, you fix their kitties, and then they bring you new kittens. So are you raising up the second generation of really healthy, vibrant species appropriately fed cats now? Yes, and it's fascinating to see what is happening and what isn't happening with kittens that have been fed appropriately right their whole life. Yeah, and not just not just fed appropriately. I mean, nutrition is the basis for everything we do, but because of all of these positive results we've seen, we also don't use antibiotics almost at all. We rarely reach for steroids. In fact, the whole idea of giving a medicine is now has come to the point in our practice um, because I have mentored three other vets so far in this, in this medical approach um, is that if my associates can't prove to me that the benefit of a medication will outweigh both the potential side effects and the stress of administration, then we don't give it. So good. Um, and this has been um, continued to be uh, enforced by the new, and uh, thank God, um, emphasis on antibiotic stewardship yep. and proper use of antibiotics, not the same old, you know, one ML twice a day for 10 days, but 
um, trying to change when you do need to use antibiotics to uh, a format of the highest dose for the shortest possible time that will have the least chance of leaving resistant bugs behind. Mm -hmm. um, and we try to stay on top of all of this. And while we're, while we're decreasing our use of antibiotics and, and uh, paying attention to not using third generation cephalosporins and fluoroquinolones and so on when something lesser will do, we're complementing that by approaching treating particularly dysbiosis, not mm -hmm. with antibiotics, but with the correct bacteria. So we've instituted a fecal transplant program and it's entirely experimental, of course, but it's based on very good theory and our results have been quite surprising, not only with gut disease, but even with um, behavioral problems and yep. issues that seem to derive from gut disease. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think that people, veterinarians who have incorporated microbiome transplants have all noticed the behavioral components. And I think quite, and, you know, initially quietly, we, we will discuss it kind of behind the scenes, but because now, thankfully, the human literature is also kind of providing additional information that we can draw from. Those are conversations we can have publicly now. And I'm just so thankful that professionally, we are starting to talk more about the fact that that gut brain, gut organ, um, mm. gut, gut mentation, I mean, all those things are affect the entire body is dictated by microbiome. So can I venture to guess for that the primary that you primarily when you think about the diagnostics that you're doing, you're doing a lot of gut diagnostics as most functional medicine doctors are that you start by analyzing where you're at with the gut and then rechecking microbiome to determine how your patient's doing? Yes, um, we, we are, as I say, um, very diagnostically heavy and therapeutically light. We monitor a tremendous yeah. amount and we try to respect the animal's own immune system, understanding that for the most part, um, all animals have evolved to survive challenges to the immune system. And oftentimes interventions are at best useless and often harmful. Damaging. Um, better to watch and stand back. Um, one of the things I teach is don't just, don't just do something, stand there. Um, <laughs> Smart. Yep. And so we do a tremendous amount of diagnostic work. And one of the things we're working on is um, understanding how diagnostic trending over time um, can predict the onset of particularly gut disease through changes in um, typically trends in uh, lymphocytes, monocytes, um, phosphorus, potassium, and globulin. Um, we can show over time now, and we're developing enough data to actually do this statistically significantly, that trends in those elements will tell us when cobalamin folate and July are going to change. So we can, we can detect the, de the development of gut disease before those tests actually change um, and intervene earlier. Um, and my husband, who is uh, uh, a PhD in artificial intelligence, is actually working on a program to harvest our data and do the statistical evaluation on that. Um, so great. So great. Think, think of all the subclinical pancreatitis your husband will fix in the next 10 years, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And, and a whole host of other things, of course, as well. No, that, and what a great combination and what a, what an excellent support in that he, that's a missing piece. I think oftentimes for other veterinarians to learn and grow from is, is the piece that he can provide. And so what a, what a beautiful combination. That's amazing. So 
when you walk into your practice every morning, what do you love most about this proactive ancestral common sense way of practicing where you are monitoring more and when I say prescribing less, you are instituting common sense lifestyle interventions like species appropriate food, right? Managing the gut and then letting the body's own innate healing mechanisms kick in and facilitating that. That's an entirely different way of practicing than what we were taught in vet school. When you walk into your practice, knowing that you've shifted to this intentionally creating wellness, Mm -hmm. what do you love most about this? I love seeing over and over and over again, the success of this approach. Um, and I wish every time I see a cat who has stopped vomiting, who has lost weight, who is no longer asthmatic, who is no longer <laughs> diabetic, I, I wish that every vet could see what I see. But yeah. of course, you can't see it unless you try this approach in the practice. Um, And so all we can do is talk to our colleagues and describe how amazingly successful this is. Um, It's pretty fascinating to me that nearly everyone that's ever come to work for me who has worked in the profession at all, hears me talk about this when they first come in and they go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, whatever. Within a month, every single person who's ever come to work with me becomes a true believer Mm, because because it's just over and over and over again every cat gets better and it's just intensely satisfying as opposed to my earlier years of practice when cats would come in with problems and we would give them steroids and antibiotics and maybe they'd get better for a while but they come back with the same problem because we were never addressing the underlying cause yep so so just one side note about your theory on why there are some veterinarians that will hear this interview and think ah ah They are two peas in a pod and I don't understand what that pod is. And yet there will be some veterinarians that will hear this and think, you know, I'm frustrated with my diagnostic toolkit. I'm frustrated with therapeutic diets, not being therapeutic. I'm, there are some veterinarians that will continue to learn and grow, hear this, and it it would pique an interest. And there are some veterinarians that will instantaneously say, absolutely not. This is no. What do you think for, is it just a different in my, is it a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset? What do you think it is between some veterinarians saying I'm desperate enough in my career choice, not being able to fix my patients or internally not satisfied with where I am professionally in terms of my success? What's the difference between veterinarians saying I have nothing left, left to lose by trying this? Or veterinarian saying, I am 40 years in and I'm not learning one more thing that I learned in vet school and I do not believe this and what they're doing is dangerous and could harm your cat. What's the difference in that mindset? Wow, I wish I knew because unfortunately, like I said, I'm a little older than God and, and what one of the things that excites me is learning, learning, learning all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I do observe, I read records from people who are far younger than I am who are doing exactly the same thing that they did when they came out of vet school and have never, yeah. never learned or changed at all. And I, I don't understand that. I don't understand why anyone would go into this profession without a passion for continuing to learn and change, yeah. without being a scientist to, to understand that almost everything we think we know now is wrong and we must continue to learn because that's what science is. Yeah. Um, but I, I would also say at the risk of sounding like a conspiracy theorist that um, I think there is a huge and very, very 
negative influence on the veterinary profession from the pet food industry in mm -hmm. general. Um, and part of that is the incestuous relationship that it has now being that at this moment, one pet food company owns a very large percentage of the entire veterinary industry, not just hospitals, but labs and so on as well. Um, and veterinary hospitals are notoriously non-profitable. So they didn't buy these hospitals in order to make a profit from the hospitals. They bought them because they can control which prescription diets are sold. And those are extremely profitable. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the reasons veterinarians find this so hard to to make this change and I know because I went through the same thing is that once you start to realize that these diets, particularly the prescription diets are bad, you have to face two things. One is that your hospital is, has an income stream directly from those diets. And that's, that's hard to yep. break. Yep. Insidiously those those diets are inducing more disease that keeps the pets coming back in your door. And that's a secondary income stream that's much larger and much harder to let go of and much harder to recognize because you have to recognize in order to turn away from that, mm. that you've got a great deal of harm. And in order to do that, you have to forgive yourself because yeah. you do the best you can with the knowledge mm. that you have at mm. the time. And this is the same message I give my clients who come in having fed this stuff and they're like, Oh my God, I've hurt my cat. Well, you know what? I, I share. So have I, I've hurt yeah. my patients. I've hurt my own cats and the rest of my career is dedicated to making up for that. Yep. Yep. We're both in the same, we're both in the same bucket when it comes to that. And I think the more that as veterinarians, we can discuss our mistakes, admit them, admit to our clients, Hey, this is what this, I thought I was doing right then. Um, and I apologize and let's, let's pivot and move forward. You and I, I think, um, find strength in being able to discuss our professional mistakes, but also as a whole, our professional mistakes, because you know, what we learned in vet school 25 years ago is not applicable in all realms right now. And so discussing the evolution needed within our profession is also a big step that some of us would like to have and some of us aren't necessarily interested. Fern, if you could tell the world one thing about your evolution, um, your thought process is now where you're at because things will be different in five and 10 years. But if you could let the world know one thing right now, what would it be? Well, it would have to be food. It would have to be the that the vast, vast majority of commercially produced pet food is not only not good for the, the pets, but is actively harmful. And that consumers as, as pet parents need to search out better information that will let them make more informed choices based on current knowledge. Um, and not consider so much just the convenience of putting kibble in a bowl, but what is the health effect that that's actually going to have on your pet? Yeah. And, and to think of it in terms of an investment that yes, good food costs more, mm -hmm. but the medical costs involved with treating the diseases caused by evolutionarily unnatural food, those costs are huge, not just yeah. in money, but in stress in pain in emotional, yeah, wear and tear. Yeah. If you invest up front in more costly but healthier food and your veterinary costs down the road are less, 
that's a, that's a good decision financially yeah. as well. Yeah. I, I joke with my clients that my, my aim here is to put myself out of business because mm-hmm. I want them to feed their cats such that they never have to come see me for any help. Yeah. Problem. yeah. So good. So I love, I love that you have made this pivot. I love that you have, you're serving your community, providing a light to other veterinarians, giving incredible hope to clients with kitties that desperately need what you're doing, what you're providing, the education that you're giving both their owners and the, your fellow veterinarians is just wonderful. If people wanted to learn more about what you do, if people wanted to come visit you, if they want to read and learn, where would they go to find more information? Well, our website, uniquelycats.com, has um, a good deal of information on it. Um, in fact, a lot of people come to us because they found discussions about diet and whatnot on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also you know, happy to field phone calls. And, and although we can't, of course, give medical advice to patients we haven't seen, we can certainly and often do um, send people all over the world our recommendations for the for the commercially made pet foods that we have vetted and and found to be good, found to match the mouse in a blender model. Um, and just that one thing, if, if we can take a cat who lives on the other side of the planet and influence it so that that cat's diet is now evolutionarily natural and that, that cat gets better, it doesn't matter to me that I haven't made a profit from that. That makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. I am so thankful that Barbara took the time to nominate you, Dr. Slack, for your Game Changer Award. Not only is it, uh, are we wildly happy that you're doing all that you're doing, the fact that you are so willing and able to continue the discussion with your colleagues, clients, people around the world, cat lovers everywhere are benefiting from your compassion, free openly willing to share advice, uh, inspire. That is exactly how we will have healthier kitties, cats, and a generation of animals in a decade because of people just like you learning a better way and then openly discussing it with your incredible passion and your desire to continue the conversation. That's exactly how things will be better for kitties in a decade. So we appreciate all that you're doing. And we're so thankful that Barbara nominated you. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it.